Just give it to Mike. Give the mic to Mike. Mike. Give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything. So, if the ladies are having the if gathering, what are the men having? Ready? We're having the what if gathering. They stole the title, I'm going to write a book on golf. And I've said this for years, the title of my golf book, for those of you that play golf, the title of my book is If dot dot dot. If I hadn't done this, if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't, if I hadn't shown up, if I'd have stayed home today, whatever it might be, that's, when you play golf, you're constantly saying, if, if Red hadn't have spoken in my backswing, we were playing years ago, me and uh, three other guys were playing up at a place called Shallow Falls up at Pickwick. I don't think it's open anymore, but we were, we were playing golf, and one of the guys that playing, was playing with us was a big man. He had played college basketball, and he was a big guy, and uh, about 6'6", six, six, and, and he loved golf, but he, he just wasn't very good. And uh, so we're up there, like I was good, you know, we're, we're up there, we're playing, and it was, uh, we're always messing with each other and, and, and goofing around. And if I, go, I, I tell people, ask me to play golf with them, I said, well, the number one thing you got to understand is I'm going to have a good time. So uh, I'm going to laugh at you. And I promise you, I'll give you plenty to laugh at in return, but I'm going to have a good time. So if you want to, uh, to go to uh, uh, expect good golf, then you probably don't want to play with me. So anyway, we're up there playing and, and we're like, we're back here joking around. One of the guys that put a snake in, uh, he knows I'm terrified of snakes. Well, he found a dead snake, and he put it in my bag. And, you know, just, uh, that's why I have a hard problem to this day. I, I, I told him that the other day. I talked to him. I told him that the other day. So this guy's getting ready to swing on you on the part three. He's, he's figuring out what he's going to do. And so we're back here joking around about the snake. It was on the uh, tee box when I found it. And I'm telling him what a jerk he was for putting a snake in my bag. And, and I quit talking because this guy was getting ready to hit. Well, he just kept, kept on. And finally, the guy, he'd not been playing well, he snapped. He, he turned around and says, what are you doing talking in my backswing? And I thought, he's getting ready to punch him out, and then we gotta, we got to carry him all the way back to Memphis bleeding. So if, dot, dot, dot. But I do think, ladies, whether you're here today or you know, watching virtually, I think that that's something that you will uh, uh, find valuable. I think you will really enjoy it. It'll be a, it'll be a, a cool weekend and Guys can help out. We'll be helpers. Actually, Tiffany Nance and Lauren Butler were supposed to make this announcement today that that Rhiannon made, but neither one of them is willing to do that. So what I'm going to do is bring them up here. Like like that's going to happen, right? And just just have them share. Really what we're going to do is we're going to have Lauren do another pictorial directory. All right, turn to Romans chapter 12. In your Bible and or your device, own it. Romans chapter 12. We're going to pick up where we were a couple of weeks ago, and we had the uh, Cameron pause last week, and he did a, just a great job in James. And what I want to do, what I want to pick up again today, if you'll notice the top of your outline there, we're looking at the loving church. That's what we've been focused on, and I want to uh, finish up. There's two basic components components to this, and Jesus taught us that, that basically the gospel is summed up in you love God with all your being, and you love other, others, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so how that works out in practicality in the life of the Christian church and in the lives of believers is that we love God first. It all begins with that. If I'm born again and, and God is, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, then Jesus said others will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it breaks down into, into a simple dichotomy. We love each other, the church. That's what we've been focused on in point one of the handout. Loving each other, fellow believers. And then the gospel is us going out and loving non-believers, and we're going to transition into that. But I want to make sure, I want to wrap up today loving each other. We've talked about, again, if you look there on your handout, you've seen that we, we've talked about the theme. You look at Romans 12, verse 9, says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Well, the theme of this entire passage, as it's set up in context, and as, it's, as it's written, and as you go through it, is that idea of let love be without hypocrisy. And then he begins to explain what does that mean. And we've looked at the fact loving each other means you sin- we sincerely love one another, that it's not fake, that it's real, there's no wax, sincerely. That we serve each other, we're devoted to one another. I want to meet your needs, I want to be there for you. And that I'm spiritually diligent. And I really love that one. And that was very personal for me. Because the idea of being spiritually diligent, I've always thought about, you know, I've been a Christian almost over 50 years. And in my life, one of the things I was, I was taught as a, as a young Christian, a teenager, was you need to make sure you're in Bible study and you need to be praying. The things that we should do. But no one ever really explained to me why that's true other than this is just what we do. And then again, over the years, and I've learned and what, what this passage is talking about, when it says be spiritually diligent, it means I want to be diligent, which means committed to, it's a habit of my life, it's who I am, that I'm diligent to be better tomorrow. Let's say you're an accountant or an engineer, that I want to be better tomorrow at what I do than I am today. I want to be more successful in what I do. As a believer, I can never be satisfied that I've spiritually arrived. When you get to the point that you have an attitude that I've spiritually arrived, guess what? You're going backwards. My attitude needs to be that I'm never, like Paul writes in Philippians, that one thing I do, I press on because I have not arrived. And so the idea here in Romans of being spiritually diligent is I am focused on me being everything that God wants me to be, that I'm growing, that I'm learning, that that I'm expanding, that I am seeking opportunities on a daily basis to minister to others, that I'm spiritually looking at myself and making sure I'm where I am. Jesus talked about when we were dealing with judgment. Jesus said, make sure before you look at the speck in the other person's eye, you get the what out of your own eye. The log. In other words, you probably need to look at yourself first before you start pointing out other people's flaws. And the idea is, make sure you're where you need to be, and then you can love others the way they need to be loved. And so I look at at every, again, we're talking about right now within the church, loving each other, loving fellow believers. And I'm diligent there in verse 11 to be everything that God wants me to be so that I can be everything that I need to be for you. Now, verse 12 then says that we are steadfastly, it's a process of doing that, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and continuing in prayer. Which leads us to where we are going to start today. Verse 13. 
We are distributing to the needs of the saints given the hospitality. Remember now, we're talking about loving each other within the church right now. Distributing to the needs of saints. Just a little side note in case you don't know this and it's something you can impress your friends with at your next Christian gathering. What is a saint in the Bible? Really good Christian? Someone who's a pastor, someone the church has declared is, is worthy of a special title called saint? No. What's a saint in scripture? Anybody who's born again? Anybody who's, who's a Christian? Not the really good ones. Not the Mother Teresas of the world or the Popes or the Billy Grahams. It's you. It's me. It's anyone who's committed their life to Jesus Christ. Now, within that panorama of those who've committed their life to Christ, there are some that are more mature than others, right? There are some that are, that are, are doing a better job of being what God wants them to be than others. But all of us are saints, in other words. How many of you have children? How many of you have more than one child? How many of you have one child that you like more than the others? All right, now we're talking. Are you always 100% pleased with all your children and everything they do? Of course not. But sometimes within a family, when they have children, sometimes there's a child who tends to be more obedient than the others. I know growing up, I was by far the most obedient child in our home. I had an older brother and a younger brother, and they were both trouble. I just did what, because I, I was terrified of my father, I just did what I was told. The only thing I ever did was play basketball. They did other things. No, seriously, when you have, when you're a parent, sometimes children are, are different. Obviously, they're different. And their obedience scale sometimes is, is different. So what God says is, if you love me, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Do I always get that right? No but I want to. So this idea here of distributing to the needs of the saints, the idea in the original language this was written was the mutual of sharing. This is where the word fellowship comes from, that koinonia word. People like to have a Sunday school class called koinonia because it makes you look very spiritual. The Greek word koinonia, or fellowship, means sharing things that you have in common. Sharing what it means to be a Christian. Sharing what it means to be growing in uh, the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sharing the love that we've experienced. Sharing the forgiveness that we've experienced. That I know what it means to be forgiven because I'm born again. Jerry also knows that. And we can, he's my brother in Christ. And what you discover is, in many cases, if you have, like in my case, if you have siblings that are not Christians, I find that I'm much closer to my brothers in Christ than I am my two earthly siblings. doesn't mean I don't love them. I do. But they don't understand me. They think I'm a religious fanatic or a goody-two-shoes or a Jesus freak. And they've always thought that since for 50 years. One's younger and one's older, as I said. And they, they don't understand. Now, they've seen it, worked out. And they know, they, they, they've watched my life. They know what I believe. They've heard what I believe ad nauseum from their point of view. And they know that, that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's not their perspective on life. It's Rhett Butler's perspective. It's Chad Stewart. It's Dick Hunter's. People that are my brothers in Christ. But they also can empathize with me. They understand 
when I say that I'm really struggling in an area of my life and my walk with the Lord. They understand that. Non-believers, even though they're my siblings and we carry the same blood around, had the same two parents, they don't understand that. Because what do they not have? They don't have the presence of God in their lives. They don't have the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to them. These guys that I mentioned do have that ministry of the Holy Spirit. When I can, I can say to them, pray for me, and they will agonize for me. I can say, pray for me, and my brothers, and they're like, our Father, which art in heaven, what do, you, what do you want me to do? They don't understand it. And so when you come to the church, it's important, back to verse 13, when it says sharing and meeting needs, distributing to the needs of saints, it means mutually sharing that genuine fellowship we have. And then it works out, this specific in this context, it works out in different ways. Meeting their needs. It might be a material need, a financial need, where you find out a brother or sister in Christ is really hurting and you just want to help them. It can be financial. Absolutely it can. It might be emotional, kind of what I was just talking about now. It might be a mental, where you just put your arm around them and say, I want you to know how much I love you and, and I care about you. And I'm, when, when one of these guys or one of you say, Randy, I'm praying for you. And Mary and I have really experienced that since October, how special that prayer is. And that, that people have literally not just been praying for us in, in that arena and meeting that need. That's the greatest need that we have. But physically, showing up at our house and bringing food, which, by the way, has been really good. I've, I, Mary's losing weight, and I'm gaining weight, so we have to ease up. i got to find a way to, to get some exercise. And how, how many other people beyond those who have literally brought stuff to us is emotionally uh, what it's meant for her? for people just to call her up and, and talk to her or text her. Some have come to the house and just sat and talked with her. And that's meeting a need. Because, again, we've been married almost 48 years. We've known each other 51 years. There's still things about my wife I don't understand. I'm not female. I don't have gastroparesis. Give you a simple example, the if gathering we're talking about, and ladies coming together and loving on each other and just being encouraged. Uh, things like that, you think, well, you we just do it. Something, even, getting, even if you're just getting together, like if I get together and play golf with guys or we go to see the Cardinals play or, or whatever it might be, you think, well, that's just doing something. You never know how God's going to use one of those. Mary went to one of these type things years ago. I think it was an ornament exchange, if I'm not mistaken. And she sat with a lady at a table. They didn't know each other, and they were the older ladies there, and most of them were, were younger, and they were the older ones there. So they sat at the table together with some other ladies, and they did the, I think it was the ornament exchange, whatever it was. And they did it, no big deal. That was years ago. We were going through the midst of what she's dealing with now, when the gastroparesis was so bad, and we couldn't get the domperidone medicine because it was sitting in all by the way, I have enough of that now until Jesus comes back. I walked in my mailbox this week, and there's another two boxes sitting in there. It's just kind of like they're sitting there now, so I'll leave them alone. I don't know what it is, but I got enough now for, for a long time. Well, she couldn't get the medicine. We, there was literally nothing we could do. And I was preaching one Sunday, and I was talking about that. I got home. The guy here in our church called me. He said, my mom has gastroparesis, and she takes domperidone, and would you like me to bring you 100 pills to get, tide you over until yours gets here? I think I've probably told you that. It's kind of like God said, okay, here it is. You know who the lady was? 
She was the lady Mary had met at the ornament exchange that total strangers had just sat at the table together years ago. And then she was calling, and she was coming by the house, and because she can empathize, she has gastroparesis. So she can empathize with what my wife is going through. That's called verse 13, distributing to the needs of saints. She just said, here, you just take 100 pills, and when you get your pills in, you can pay me back. Now I got it up, I can pay her back, and also again, God, through the body, has ways of saying, we are one. You might be an elbow, you might be an ear, but how many bodies are there? It's one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, distributing to the needs of saints, whether they're financial, they're emotional. It might be something simple as what we're just talking about, uh, a friendship need. The context in which this was written, and we talk about it from our, our point of view, but it says where it says distributing to the needs of saints. I want you to see the, the context historically because it's really important. In the early church, if you were Jewish, which the early church, by and large, especially early on, was very much Jewish, almost 100% Jewish. As a matter of fact, the Romans considered it just another sect of Judaism. And Peter was the leader when it was at Jerusalem before it went out. We saw it we studied Acts. But here's what happened to people. If, I, if I'm a Jew, I grew up Jewish, I grew up in, in, the, in the, the Jewish faith, uh, in synagogue, going to temple, and all of those things. And then when you became a follower of Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, and the Pharisees and the Jewish hierarchy did not believe him to be the Messiah, we know what they did to him, what happened to you? Well, you lost the ability to earn income because you were ostracized. You were excommunicated from synagogue, you, your own family would have nothing to do with you, and you certainly could not conduct business with other Jews. And with Jerusalem, that's what it was, because you had rejected Judaism. So did you have needs? Yes. So what Paul is saying to the church at Rome, obviously he was spreading out and Gentiles were becoming in well and other aspects of this, but what he was saying is, there are believers that are hurting. And so you need to make sure that you help meet their needs. Take care of each other. Because look at the metaphors that are used in Scripture to describe the church. We're a body. We talked about it a moment ago. We're all part of the same body. We need each other to function. We're a family. God doesn't pick his terms accidentally. There's a reason that we call, we call each other brothers and sister. He uses terms like you've been adopted in the family, the children of God, beloved, little children. All those phrases that are used to describe Christians. They're all relational terms. They're all loving terms. They're all family terms that we're loving each other. And the whole genesis of this little mini-series was for us to be a loving church or a genuine church. Let love be without hypocrisy. We looked at that word agape, meaning that it's just sacrificial and it's unconditional. And if Steve has a need, I want to meet Steve's need because Steve's part of me. He's my brother. He's part of my family. I want to be there. 
And as I said a moment ago, Mary and I have seen that just graphically illustrated in our lives over the last few months through the prayer lives of you guys and then physically even being there. The next point there in verse 13. Distributing to the needs of saints, given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. Literally what this means, again, this is in the church itself. We'll use another example in a moment. It literally means, in, in Greek, pursuing opportunities to be neighborly. Looking for opportunities to love on someone. And, and again, you guys have, have illustrated that. Even as I was studying this, just God kept reminding me of sweet people in their texts and their emails and cards and, and, call, and the phone calls and wanting to bring stuff and wanting to do something. That they're pursuing opportunities to be hospitable. Giving of yourself. It literally means, even though it's within the church, because it could be true, it literally means loving strangers. If you don't know just because someone is a believer doesn't mean you know them personally, even in this room. Assuming that we're all born again and we know Jesus as our Savior, I guarantee you there's somebody in your room don't know the name of everybody here. The people here that you have not personally been introduced to or know, but the idea here is if they were hurting, you would want to be part of helping them as well, given that you're a hospitable person. Probably the best example, even though it was used in other ways, but maybe the best example is Jesus gave them, they asked Jesus, who is my neighbor and which parable did he give them? Parable of the good Samaritan. Remember, they're Jewish. And what was the mindset of a Jew about a Samaritan? I want nothing to do with them. They're the ones that fought against us when we came back and we were going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The, the Samaritans were the ones, the half-breeds that tried to stop us. They're anathema to us. We won't even walk through. They would go around Samaria, Judea and Galilee. Going to Judea to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria. They would go around it. They would not want to step on their land. So Jesus goes out of his way to say to them, here's what it means to be a Christian or Christ-following neighbor. Be like the Samaritan, whom they considered half-breed dogs. Couldn't get any lower than a Samaritan. Jesus said, I want you to be like, not the priest in the parable, not the Levite in the parable, but the Samaritan. They considered that an oxymoron, a good Samaritan. There is no such thing. Jesus said, here's your picture. Plant this in your mind and then go love people that your culture tells you you ought to hate. By the way, is that a message our nation could use right now? What does it really mean to love someone? What does it really mean to care? Say, I'm talking about false teachers in my 930 class, and one of the ways they're described in 2 Peter is they speak great, swelling words of emptiness. You know what that means in Greek? They're politicians. That's what Chad Stewart said. Great, swelling words of emptiness. You ever watch some of them? Like, particularly if you watch C-SPAN, which I hope you don't, you got a bit more time when you don't have that much time when you're in. But they'll show somebody making, got that little podium there, and they give them the clip the microphone. Guy is reading whatever he's reading, and he'll go on for 10 or 50, whatever his time limit is. And then he'll, then he'll surrender his time to the sister from where, wherever. And you listen, you're like, what did that person just say? Nothing. 
great swelling words of emptiness. Give of yourself. Jesus said, love like this. Remember the context, starting in verse 9. Love without hypocrisy. You love the person no matter who they are. You care. You're interested in them. You're not going to agree on every little thing. You're not. But it should never. We'll see more about this in a moment. The parable of the Good Samaritan certainly illustrates it. But you should never let disagreement over non-essential things stop you from fellowshipping, meeting one another's needs. We don't disfellowship over non-essential things. And we love no matter what. No matter what the sin is that's caught up that person, you still love them. You care about them. You want to meet their needs. You look at other people as more important than you. Why is that? Why is that so essential? Because if the church is going to reach the world for Jesus Christ, the world has to see what? Jesus Christ in us. We have to be different. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote these words. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I preached a sermon on that years ago, and it made such an impact on my life personally as I was studying for it. Going through that 1 Corinthians 15 and looking at the context, it was a church that had all kinds of problems. Here's what Paul is saying to them. Don't give up. Though if you're a college basketball fan like I am, you probably remember years ago, 1981, Jim Valvano, North Carolina State coach, and they win the national championship. A game they should never have won, and they win it. That incredible play at the end, and he, excuse me, they, he dies a few years later of cancer. And he made that great speech that said what? Don't give up. Don't ever, ever give up. And the message that Paul was writing to the church at Corinth and in Scripture screams to the church that what you do matters, what you do is important. Even though in the moment you may not see it, you may not feel it, Satan may tell you you're wasting your time, who do you think you are? What God is saying is what you do matters. Your prayer life is important. Your, your service, your sharing, your meeting needs, your caring, your loving. It may be something as simple as sending a text or an email or if you're on social media, and I don't think I'm the only person in the world that is not, that you are sending positive, caring messages that people are lifted up because it matters. God, and probably in my life, and as I get older, I think it's even more important to remember that God saved me 51 years ago. What did he not do? He saved me, gave me eternal life. What did he not do? He did not take me home. He left me where? Here. For a reason. If you're born again, again, no matter how old you are, you're here for a reason. And the reason is the work of the Lord. That you're steadfast. That you're immovable. Because what you do matters. Don't ever get up. Give up. William Barclay wrote these words. Let a man be a saint or let, let a man be a sinner. God's only desire is for the man, that man's highest good. Agape, it's a Greek word for love. It's the spirit which says, no matter what any man does to me, I will always seek nothing but his highest good. That is to say, Christian love, agape, 
is unconquerable benevolence, invincible goodwill. So it all begins with we love each other. Now, point two on your handout, look at that. Let's transition for a moment to loving non-believers because this is what it's all about. We know as the church of Jesus Christ that he's coming back someday. Do we know when that is? No, some people will tell you they figured that out, but they haven't. We don't know when he's coming back. We do know that he is. We're in the church age. We've been in it since he ascended, since he left, particularly since Pentecost when he sent the Holy Spirit. We're in the church age. We will be in it until he comes back. This is our time in our section of the church age. So what he says is, we've talked about now for several weeks, and we're done with this section. Love each other so that the world will see what genuine agape love is and not be turned off by what they experience at church or at the hands of Christians, but will be drawn to that fellowship we just talked about, that mutual sharing because we have something special in Jesus Christ. And then we get to share with them what it means, what the gospel is. And it all begins with loving non-believers. So when you get to Romans 12, verse 14, it transitions. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Enemy, enemy. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. In the Old Testament. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You'll notice in there, what's the first word in verse 19? Verse 19, what's the first word? If you got the translation the Apostle Paul used, it is beloved. Beloved. There it is again. He uses that over and over in his letters, particularly in Romans. Beloved. John uses little children. Again, family terms and loving terms. So he's saying beloved, body of Christ. Let's talk about enemies now. Let's talk about those outside the church. Let's talk about those we want to reach with the gospel and bring into the church. We want to show them that genuine love. So here's what Paul does in verses 14 through 21. He lists four priorities for Christians. The church are four priorities to respond to our culture that's anti-Christ. They lived it in Rome, and we're living it right now in the United States of America. This is not a Christian nation any longer. It has Christians in it. But our culture is anti-Christian. But it's a great time to be here. It's a great time to be a believer. And as we're going to talk about, we'll start looking at the book of Esther in a couple of weeks. It's our time. And I'm excited about it. And so here in verses 14 through 21, he gives some four priorities. How do Christians respond to a culture 
that's anti-Christ so that they can see the love of God, that sincere love, let love be without hypocrisy, so that they can see we're genuine, that we're real, and that we care about them even though they don't reciprocate, even though they don't agree, we love them. And here are the four priorities, and then we're going to get into it. Number one, priority number one is blessing people. Talk about that. Number two, it's being people of integrity. People of integrity. You hear people throw that word around all the time. I'll give you a simple example about integrity. Several years ago, gosh, been maybe 15 years ago now, I was asked to teach at a, at a local public school. They were bringing people in from outside, like Jeff Calkins from the Commercial Appeal came in to talk about that, and, and they wanted to have a preacher come in, so I don't know why, but they asked me. And I said, well, you, and of course, what was the, the criteria they gave me as a preacher to come in here and speak in their public school? Don't talk about what? God. And I'm like, well, what, do you want, what do you want me to talk about? But I thought, man, what a great opportunity. I've got to figure this out. And I said, yes, I'll do it. So I picked integrity. Because every company talks about they want people of integrity. Every organization wants people of integrity. And these were seventh grade kids. I had them all day long. They, you know, every the class would leave, another class would come in. Seventh grade kids come in, and I just had the word integrity written on the board. And I had whatever I had forty minutes with them, so I said, "Okay, here's what I want to do. I want just quickly we'll go around the room, twenty uh, so each each class. I said, I just want you to shout out what you want to do with your life when you grow up. Well, all the boys, not all, but most of the boys said, "What? We'll play pro sports." I'm going to be an NBA basketball player. I'm going to be a professional baseball player or whatever it might be. So I wrote it up on the board. And then I'm going to be a mortician. Somebody, you know, they're trying to be funny. I'm going to be a mortician. Or I'm going to be a hairdresser, whatever they call it. Uh, I'm going to be an accountant. I said, why in the world would anybody want to do that? But anyway. So I write up on the board, you know, the 10 to 15 things. They, they, I'm going to be a, a musician. They sing out. Shout out. So I said, okay. Now, in every one of these, we're going to go through, and I want you to tell me what integrity has to do with what it is. And they, some are like, well, what does integrity mean? So we never mentioned God one time. Here's what I told him. I said, integrity means that when you look me in the eye and you say something, I know I can trust you. I know that if you tell me I'll be there for you, I know what? You'll be there for me. I use some examples from when I was in the business world that a guy would tell me he's going to meet me in Tupelo to work at a store. Certain guys I knew would meet me at Tupelo and they'd be there. Other guys, I'm like, if I don't call him and wake him up, he ain't going to be there. And then I got to waste the day in Tupelo because he's not there to help me. There are certain people you could trust, people of integrity, that their word matters, that when they make you a promise, they plan to keep it. And they said, well, what does that got to do with being a basketball player? And I said, okay, I'll tell you, because I love basketball. I said, if you're, if you're a player on an NBA basketball team, you want to know that you could trust that the other guys that are on your team are going to do their dead level best to do their job. Because if they don't do their job, your job's going to suffer. If you're a mortician, they were trying to be funny, I said, let's take that one. Any of you even know what a mortician is? And somebody said, funeral director. I said, okay, you're right. 
said, I want to know that when I turn my loved one over to that funeral director that they're going to care about my loved one. That I'm going to know that when he tells me this is what we're going to do for your mom or your dad, that they'll follow through. They'll treat them with respect. I want to know I can trust that person. That's integrity. Priorities. That the world needs to know that when a Christian says something, they mean it. That it means something to them to follow through on their word. Bless other people. Have integrity toward other people. Be at peace with people. And then transformation of lives. That's our goal. Our priority as we deal with non-believers. Bless them. Be in people of integrity before them. Be at peace with them. Show them what peace really is. And then we want to see their lives transformed by the gospel because our lives have been what? Transformed by the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. So look at verse 14 through 16. This is just kind of a general statement. We're going to get more specific about, Paul says, about people in general, non-believers in general, everybody. Number, verse 14, number one, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless and do not curse. Literally what that means, and it's a, that this is the exact opposite of our nature as human beings. That if somebody persecutes me or curses me, my retaliation, it says, do, literally what it means in original language is do not retaliate. Don't curse them in return. Don't persecute them in return. Because we're different. We've got a different nature. We've got the nature of Jesus Christ. We want to bless instead of retaliate. For example, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, what's the one thing he said about the people who had beaten him and were torturing him to death? He only said one thing about him. What was it? Forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He showed them love. The Bible illustrates it for us by the centurion who was in charge, standing at the foot of the cross, said what? Truly this man is the Son of God. Because Jesus loved them right up to the point he died, he was still loving the ones who were killing him. So here's the idea when it says, do not bless, curse, but actually bless them, do not curse them. And by the way, in the original language, this is not a suggestion. This is not, if you feel like it, do the best you can. This is a command. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. This is a command of God. When someone persecutes you, when someone curses you, you turn around and you bless them. You know what it means to bless someone? This is an incredible word. It means to call down God's best for them. Wow. These are people that are out to get you. I mean, this is everybody in general. He's talking about people in general. We'll get more specific with enemies. But people in general, he's saying, somebody hurt you, ask God to do well in their lives. That's not normal. That's not a human response. It's a godly response. Remember, the whole tenor of this is you want to bring them to a point where their lives are transformed by the gospel because yours has been. So what's God's, 
let's say you're, you've got this person and you're trying to bless them who's cursed you. And you, they're not a believer. What's the one? They're not a believer. What's the one thing you want for that non-believer? To become a what? Become a believer. You don't want, not, the one thing you want is for them to get off your back. No. Even though you'd probably like for them to get off your back. Or get out of your face. Never bother you again. That's understandable. What God says is, pray for them. Jesus literally said that. Ask God's best for them, bless them, literally speak well of them to God so that they could be saved. I've shared this example many times, but it's so apropos in my life. When my father died, my mother had already died several, a couple of years before. When my father died in, in his estate, two siblings, my younger brother took every penny. Again, he's not a believer. Older brother's not a believer. My younger brother took every cent that my dad had. We got nothing. I have to tell you that in the flesh, I did not like that. Because it would have been a nice amount of money for me. The Bible says the love of money is root of all kinds of evil, and I experienced that. I struggled. Thank God I have the wife that I have. Who kept reminding me, you're the Christian in the relationship. It was hard for me to even think about my younger brother without getting mad, getting bitter. And then several years later, he had lost every bit of it through divorce and never, you know, poor money management. He lost everything he had. And he was on the streets, and he called me. What did he want from me? He wanted money. And you know what my response was in my flesh? You know what my first response was? Yeah, you're getting yours now, aren't you, buddy? That's literally what I thought. That's wrong. It's sin. And you know what my sweet wife said? I learned a lot that day. You know what she said? This is your opportunity to witness to Kevin again. Take it. We ain't going to miss the money. Take it. And I did. Not because I'm the great Christian that I am. But because my wife was right. And I was convicted. And man, God, just when I did that, when I helped him out, and it wasn't a small amount of money, when I helped him out, you know what it did to me? It reminded me that I was free. It reminded me. That's what Paul is alluding to. That's what Jesus talked about. So somebody uses you, okay? Jesus said the world's going to hate you because it hated me first. Expect it. Now how are you going to respond? You bless them. You speak well of them. It shows that you have a new nature. There's a great word we get in English from this phrase right here. Bless and do not curse. We get a great English word from it. You know what the word is? Eulogy. And I've had the opportunity over the years to do many eulogies. Some of you have as well. Well, you stand up and speak well of the person who has passed away. That's the word. And remember, this is somebody who's using you, persecuting you, cursing you. God says, turn around and deliver their eulogy. Can, can you imagine being invited to the eulogy of somebody who hates you? That's the, that's the picture. Speak well of them. 
You stand up and deliver their eulogy. Kind of get stuck right here maybe if we're in the flesh. It's an opportunity to show them that, that nature. You're going to speak well of them at their funeral. Give me simple, another simple example from Scripture. Remember, because people use this all the time and it's been abused in the church over time. Remember the Old Testament when the Bible says, when someone doesn't, this is part of the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Remember that? Of course you do. You know why that, and so we were like, so what, even in the church over the years, what people thought was, well, look, the fair thing to do is if he steals from you, cut his hands off. Well, make sure that he takes his things away. You know why the standard was set up eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? It wasn't to be cruel. It was so they wouldn't do what? Be too cruel. Take more than they should. The idea was, don't, if somebody, when it says eye for an eye, they, when the Bible says eye for an eye, in other words, someone takes one of your, don't take both their eyes. Be fair. Eye for, it was, and it had to do with civil justice, not personal relationships. It was about what's our law as a Jewish nation, how are we going to live? We're going to have civil justice, but make sure it's fair. In our Constitution, what do we call it? Cruel and unusual punishment. An eye for an eye, not two eyes. For example, in some cultures today, if you steal, what do they do? They cut off your hands. That doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, so you wouldn't go too far. Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now here's a direct quote from Jesus. Now it continues. Here's what he says. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, the sun is shining right now on Christians and non-Christians. Later today, I think it's going to rain on Christians and non-Christians. We all live on the same planet. But we're different. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you, Jesus said. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Remember, if you were a Jew, what was a tax collector to you? About the highest sinner you could be. Everybody was the Samaritans. And Jesus hung out with them. What do the tax collectors do that? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That that's my goal. I want to treat everybody the way God would treat them. Remember the WWJD bracelets? I want to treat people the way Jesus would treat them. Sometimes I fail at that miserably. But that's my goal. Jesus said, that's your goal. The word perfect in it, where Jesus is speaking, means be complete. Love like your dad. Remember the first Christian martyr, Stephen. This is not God. This is a man, Stephen. As he's dying, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Same thing Jesus said. He got it. They're, they're pounding him with stones, pounding him, killing him. And his response is, Father, forgive them. And I love that story because one of the ones that's standing there holding his clothes was whom? Saul of Tarsus. He's standing there holding his clothes and he was part of the group that was having Stephen killed, one of the leaders, if not the leader, and they're pounding Stephen to death. Saul's standing there holding his clothes and then when 
when Saul of Tarsus gets, meets Jesus on the road to, Damas- road to Damascus, do you think he remembered that moment? I guarantee you he remembered it. When Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus wasn't there, but he was there. Remember Stephen looked up and said, the Bible says he looked up and saw what? Jesus standing to welcome him. I love that story. Being beaten to death. Father, forgive them, Jesus said. That's my boy. Come on. I love you. Thank you. We got to be different because we live in a culture that's anti-Christ. We have to show them why they wouldn't need to be pro-Christ. What that will do for them individually and as a nation. Peter wrote in his first epistle these words. To this you were called, believers, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. I want to share a story with you, and then we're going to be done for for today. It's a true story. It happened during the Great Depression here in our nation. It's a horrible time. If you've ever talked to anybody that went through it or you studied it, you know how bad it was. It's a true story. A guy named Judd Brewster, he was a mean, cruel, hateful man. Nobody liked him, but he was very well off. It was a fan, and it was a family named Jansen, lost everything, lost their farm and all their possessions, and they heard that they could do sharecropping work. But their property that they were going to sharecrop adjoined Judd Brewster's property, this mean guy. And everybody told him, you do not want to be next to Brewster. You, you don't want anything to do with him. You need to stay away from him. He's one of the meanest men on planet Earth. Jansen said, I tell you what, if this Judd Brewster gives me any trouble, I'll just kill him. So they moved in. They started working the farm. And their chickens that they were sharecropping got loose. The part of their, their chickens on the farm got loose. And they went into Judd Brewster's yard. And he comes stomping over to the Jansen's house, pounds on the door and says, you get those chickens out of my yard, and if you don't, you'll never see them again. So they ran over and got their chickens and put them in their hen house and locked the hen house. A couple of weeks later, their pigs got loose and they got into Judd Brewster's garden. Judd Brewster came storming up the front door, pounding on the door. He said, Jansen, your pigs are in my garden, but they'll never get in my garden again. Here they are. He jerked his thumb over his shoulder In his wagon were all the pigs that he had slaughtered. He shot every one of them. Jansen didn't do anything. He just buried his pigs. Several months later, one of Jansen's sons comes running into his house. said, Dad, get your gun. Brewster's pigs are in our garden. Normal response, right? And already you could taste the sweet flavor of revenge. And he said, he paused and he said, no, we're not going to kill, kill the pigs, boys. We're going to round them up, put them in the wagon. You ever tried rounding up pigs? I had to do that once on my grandpa. One pig. I, I had to uh, kill a chicken and catch a pig in the same day. 
I was worn out. Finally, they got him rounded up. They put him in the wagon. He pulls the wagon up to Brewster's property. He walks up the front door. He knocks on Brewster's doors, and Brewster answers, what do you want? He said, your pigs got in my garden today. And Brewster's face just goes white. Nobody, again, this is during the Depression. You just can't afford to lose things that valuable. Well, he knew that his pigs had been slaughtered just like he'd slaughtered Jansen's. So Jansen said to him, what do you want me to do with your pigs? I brought them back. Bruce said, well, just pile them behind the barn. I'll take care of it later. And Jan said, well, I can't do that because if I put them behind the barn, they're just going to get loose again. And he was showing Bruce to realize the kindness. They sat down together. The two men had a long conversation. And when Jan said left, Bruce had given him half of his pigs. And the next Sunday, for the first time in, that anyone could remember, Brewster was in church, and he gave his life to Christ. It's a true story. Someone asked Jensen, Jansen, what did you mean when you said you were going to kill him if he gave you any trouble? And he said, I, that's what I did. I killed him with kindness because that old mean neighbor we used to have is dead. He simply did what Jesus told him to do, didn't he? I'm not telling you that would be easy to do. But I'm telling you, what did Brewster realize? He saw Christ-like love manifested toward him in a very real, tangible way. That's who we have to be. We have to be different. Did you bow your heads? Follow we just pause before you again. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you the fact that the gospel, because of the gospel, our faith in Christ, we've been set free. We've been, we're different. We've been given a new nature. I pray we would never forget that. We would always remember who Christ is, what he's done for us, that we would love each other, as we've talked about, and then we would go out and love non-believers in a way that they're drawn to. That they need what we have. Genuine kindness, genuine love because our lives have been changed by Christ and we pray in his name. Amen. Please stand if you're here as we close.